0: I'm sure there are those of you who wonder why we changed the name of the church from MacArthur Memorial to the Calvary Bible Church. Well, actually, uh, a memorial has to be to someone who is dead. And I got so many letters and questions about the fact that we named the church for my father. And people thought I named it for myself, which, of course, was not true. Because, as I said a moment ago, you have to be dead. And I was not dead. (laughs) So that's how we changed the name. I'm very glad we made that change. It was a good one. I never come here, but what I'm just overwhelmed with, nostalgia, all of the things that happened in the founding of this wonderful church. And I preached here for 15 years. It was a glorious time. And I have very, very rich and wonderful memories. And it's been a pleasure and a very deep pleasure to see some of the folk. My, but you've gotten old since I left. (laughs) I haven't changed a bit, but my, how you have changed. This is Father's Day, and so I, I want to speak to you today on the subject it's a really a pertinent one. The role of the Christian husband. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them with me to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Before I do that, I would just like to say one little word about the fact that I'm so delighted in the providence of God and His kind, wonderful planning. You've called this splendid young man, well equipped, well trained, to be your pastor. And I would predict that everything up to this point has been a prelude, and now you're going to enter into a tremendous ministry. And I am so happy about it. This man has a wonderful, lovely wife and lovely children. It's been a pleasure to get to know him. And I'm sure you want to give to him in these early years of his ministry here your support, your prayers, your love, and I know you'll yeah. do that. The fifth chapter of Ephesians, beginning with verse 22, but actually it's a shame that in so many Bibles, you know, whoever made the paragraphs many times got them in the wrong place, and this is one of them. I was told in seminary, and I really believed it until I learned better, that all of the divisions of Scripture, the chapters and everything else were made by circuit-riding preachers, and when a horse hit a bad place and stumbled, and they made a new chapter. So I don't know how much. I don't think it was much truth to that, but it certainly did intrigue me. And this is one of those places. So I'd like to begin reading from the fifth chapter of Ephesians, beginning at verse 21, where the conclusion of what's gone before is cited in the words, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Our wonderful Lord, we're so grateful for this privilege. We pray that thou will cause us to be like a palm cyst to receive impressions that don't die away. How we ask that the self-life of the one who ministers will be completely obliterated in the message and that somehow thy word shall speak to us with a challenge as it always does when it is under the anointing of the Spirit of God. We thank thee for the blessing you give to us In your very precious word. So hide the self life of the one who ministers and the message to be given in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. The Christian view of marriage is the most unique in the world, it's not like that of any other so called culture or religion. Anyone reading these words of the Apostle Paul that we have just read in Ephesians 21 through 33 in our century cannot fully appreciate how significant these words are. No religion, no culture on earth has such a high view of marriage. And even though we seem to have fallen far short of the ideal, we nevertheless know that the ideal is actually the loftiest that has ever found expression. This passage of Scripture actually exalts marriage to the highest pinnacle of expression ever known in literature. For in this instance, marriage is regarded as the perfect lifelong union of body, mind, and spirit between a man and a woman. In the New Testament, marriage is specifically an act of God. Matthew 19:6. Therefore what God hath joined together, Let no man separate. And it's very remarkable that in this letter the Apostle Paul brings us to the very heights of divine revelation. Most of us love this book. He thrills our souls as he speaks to us of our being predestinated according to the riches of his grace to a place that even the angels have never known. That we are accepted in the Beloved and blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Then in the closing portion of this marvelous passage, he descends to what we might consider something very commonplace when he applies this great, beautiful revelation of God's truth concerning his church to the behavior and the interaction of the Christian family. I'm sure what All of us agree that the nearest thing to heaven on earth is a truly Christian family. I was in all gratitude to the Lord raised in that kind of a family. Where the Lord Jesus Christ is like the Son is to the world, where the husband and the wife and the children live in love and peace and in an irrevocable commitment to Jesus Christ and each other, where the marriage is never two, but three. Conversely, I think you would agree with me that it can be said that the nearest thing to hell on earth is a home where the presence of Christ is not acknowledged, where the solid basis of Christian morality and Christian ethics have been abandoned, where parents quarrel and fight and separate and where children are Neglected and become victims of the forces of malignant evil because they have no spiritual foundation upon which to build and bulwark their lives. Marriage, as we know it in Western culture, is uniquely a Christian institution. Non Christian cultures condone child marriage, marrying little girls when they reach Puberty and polygamy. If a Mohammedan can provide for them, he's permitted four wives. When I was in Jerusalem, I was in a little store where a young Mohammedan was busy selling, interestingly, Catholic relics. And I said, Do you mind if I ask you a very personal question? No, he said. And he spoke, by the way, fine English. I said, How many wives do you have? He said, I have four. Allah allows me to have four. I said, well, do your wives see each other? He said, no, they're not allowed to see each other. He said, the children play together from the four wives, but the wives never see each other. And then I said, well, is there any one of these wives that you have a greater affection for than the others? No, he said, they're just women. I never forgot that consider India's zananas and harems with its 30 to perhaps 40 million widows who are forced to live by charity or prostitution or who have become the chattels of the living brothers of their deceased of her deceased husband on the basis of the fact that the husband's death was caused by her sins in South Africa across a fence that surrounds a Zulu crail, you may hear a father planning to sell his daughter for a dozen sheep to a man who already has 50 wives. One of the sad and pathetic characteristics of marriage apart from the Christian ideal is that women have no rights at all. Before the New Testament era, it's interesting, even under Jewish law, a woman was called a thing. The Jews had a very low view of women. In the Jewish form of the morning prayer, there was a sentence in which every Jewish man every morning gave thanks to God. And when he gave that thanks, he told God that he was glad that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. A woman was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he would. She was owned by her husband in exactly the same way that he owned his sheep and his goats. And divorce was tragically easy. The law of divorce is summarized in Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his sight because he hath found some uncleanness in her, let him write her a bill of divorcement and send her out of the house. On the other hand, the wife had no right to divorce at all unless her husband became a leper or an apostate or engaged in the disgusting trade, for example, of dealing in the dead bodies of animals for their skins. A woman was utterly helpless and defenseless under Jewish marriage laws. And so at the time of the coming of Christianity, even within Judaism, Actually, marriage was in peril. Jewish girls were refusing to marry at all because the position of a wife was so insecure. Among the Greeks, conditions were even worse. Prostitution was an essential part of Greek life. Demosthenes laid it down as the common accepted rule of life, and I'm quoting him, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for our household affairs. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between a man and his wife next to impossible. By the way, their husbands could divorce them by mere public declaration. And occasionally in the Grecian games, women were given as booby prizes, as jokes to the competitors with the lowest score. Their tombs were often marked with a muzzle to show they should never speak or with a pair of reins that they should be led or driven. In the Greek world, a woman was a slave. Home and family life were near to being extinct. And certainly five Fidelity was non-existent. And so it was in the time of the Apostle Paul that he tells us about the degeneracy of Rome. It was tragic beyond words. By the time of the Apostle Paul, the Roman family was wrecked. Seneca tells us that the women dated their years by the names of their husbands. Martial, the Roman poet, tells us of a woman who had ten husbands. Juvenile tells us of one who had eight husbands in five years, another Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) Jerome declares it to be true that in Rome there was a woman who was married to her 23rd husband, and she herself was his 21st wife. Cicero, in his old age, put away his wife Terentia that he might marry a young heiress. And the reason was that she was a trustee and he wanted to get her estate in order to pay his debts. Marvelous motive for marriage. All of this sounds a little bit too much like the century in which we're living. In Rome, a woman was under her father's total control and power. By the way, the father had the absolute right of life and death over her. And When she married... She passed equally into the complete control and power of her husband and was actually at his mercy. Cato, the censor, the typical ancient Roman, wrote, If you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity and no need for a trial. And so it was into this morass of degradation of women that the Lord Jesus Christ came. And it should be remembered, although it's not, that Jesus exalted women to the highest pedestal of honor and dignity and respect that they have ever known. The feminists of our day should realize that no one ever brought to women such a place of respect and honor and security as did the Lord Jesus Christ. Women who participate in this culture should realize that they owe more to Jesus Christ than anyone who ever lived. Edward Gibbons' analysis in 1788 of the collapse of the Roman Empire cited it as for two reasons. The rapid increase in divorce, and as you know, our divorce rate now is two to one for every two marriages there's a divorce. That was the way it was in Rome. And secondly, he tells us in his chronicle that there was an assault and an effort to destroy the integrity of the home, and it was fierce and unrelenting. How true today. The pervasiveness of Joseph Fletcher's situation ethics or lack of ethics is seen, for example, by the very noxious fumes that come like a malignant breath from hell on our television and movie screens. Cal Thomas, the Christian journalist, says, Increasingly, a secularized society seems powerless to stem the tide of violence and corruption among us. The disgusting filth oozing through every pore of our society and culture is tolerated on the basis of the First Amendment. Christian virtues and belief in God is a violation of civil rights and absolutely intolerable. That's where we are. In an article written by Stanley Rotham, professor at Smith College Center for the Study of Social and Political Change, says that journalists and leading writers, producers, and directors in motion picture and television are much more likely than ordinary people to believe adultery is not wrong. Women are entitled to abortion on demand. Homosexuality is not wrong. Living together without commitment marriage is not wrong. This is the constant message that we receive all day long from the cultural elite. They believe people should have a right to express any impulse, enjoy any behavior which does not seriously, according to their carnal philosophy, injure others. And they say that if your marriage is failing, then believe me, you should be encouraged to self-encouragement and end them. Free but prudent indulgence, we're told, in sexual activity outside of marriage is no longer sinful or wrong. It can even be healthy. After all, you're an animal with basic animal instincts and drives which should never be inhibited. And so with the adoption of these radical, non-biblical, immoral ideas, Christian marriage is less and less respected and honored. You see, the Christian faith is the dynamic that has made possible the institution of Christian marriage and secured it. And there is no more beautiful expression of the ideals of Christian marriage than in these majestic words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit found in Ephesians 5, to 33. And many times it would seem that the emphasis of the passage is entirely misplaced as if the essence of it was the subordination of a wife to a husband. How the liberals have enjoyed making fun of that. The single phrase, the husband is the head of the wife, is quoted in isolation. But of course there is infinitely more in this passage than that statement. As the words in verses 23 and 24 make clear, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then comes a command, an imperative. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Actually, the Apostle is continuing his explanation of the mutual submission that he mentions in verse 21. The husband's primary submission to his wife is through his love for her. The Apostle makes it very clear that it's a boundless kind of love. Husbands are to love their wife as Christ also loved the church. What a tremendous thought Jesus Christ loved the church before he ever brought it into existence. He chose us. He elected us. He loved us for his own, we're told, even before the foundation of the cosmos. Verse 4 of the first chapter tells us that God's love for us is eternal. Obviously, no sinful human being has the capacity to love with divine fullness not with the kind of perfection with which Christ loves us and will forever love the church, the body of Christ. However, because a committed Christian has Christ's own nature and has the Holy Spirit living within him, God provides for husbands to love their wives with a measure of Christ-like love. The husband who submits to the Lord by being filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 18 is able to love his wife with the very same quality of love our Lord has for his bride, the church, that is for you and for me who are part of his body. The Lord's pattern of love for his church is the husband's pattern of love for his wife. So the basis of this passage, and this is very necessary to understand, is not control, not even leadership, it's love. The Apostle says certain things about the love that a husband should have for his wife. And by the way, the greatest thing that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. The father should be a hero to his children. Hug your children. Frequently tell them you love them and spend time with them and bond with them in every possible way. That's what was missing with those two boys who perpetrated the ghastly tragedy in Littleton, Colorado, And then committed suicide. A husband's love, number one, should be sacrificial. Our Lord said in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I always add to that, and yet he died for the vilest reprobate that ever spit in his beautiful face. That's God's love. Christ loved the church so much that he died for the church. It was an utterly unselfish love. And a husband must love his wife, not with a love that exercises the tyranny of control, not as a boss, but with a love that is ready to make any sacrifice for her, even to die for her. And the word for love in the original Greek is probably many of you know so well as agapeo which is the same word used in John 3, 16 of God's love for the world. On this word, Dr. Tenney writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, it is the noblest and strongest in Greek. It connotates an act of the will rather than emotion, whim, or infatuation and is measured in terms of its result. Olive Bishop Brantz relates this very, very moving incident. He said, there's nothing unusual about the Tanners, not even their names, William and Mary Tanner. Their friends knew them as a quiet, unassuming couple who lived on the shores of Lake Michigan, north of Chicago. On a Tuesday after Labor Day in 1919, Will and Mary started out after dinner for a walk. There was an express train coming when they reached the crossing, but there was plenty of time to cross. And then suddenly... Mary's foot slipped between the rail and the guard board and wedged there and there wasn't plenty of time there was only seconds together they struggled with the shoe trying to get her foot out trying to unlace the popular shoe of that time which was a high shoe with lacing john miller the lagman at the crossing raced out to see if he could help there wasn't any time. The train was bearing down on them. The two men tried desperately to pull Mary free. And finally, Millard cried, we can't save her. There's no way. It's hopeless. And Mary knew it was hopeless. She tried to push her husband away from her, and she pleaded with him, save yourself, Will. No, he said in the last desperate moment. I'm staying with you, Mary. Mary. And clasping her in his arms, they faced the glaring headlight together. When the engineer finally saw the figures on the tracks, he grabbed the whistle cord. He slammed shut the throttle. He set the brakes, but it was too late. Will Tanner died with the wife he loved in his arms. Will Tanner could not save Mary by sacrificing his own life. He could only demonstrate his love for her. The world's love, so-called, is always object-oriented. A person is loved because of physical attractiveness, personality, wit, prestige, even wealth, or some other characteristic. In other words, the world loves those whom it deems worthy of love and usually never gets beyond the terrible word lust satisfying yourself at the expense of someone else. And, of course, so-called love like that is necessarily fickle. It isn't love at all. As soon as a person shows physical signs of aging or loses a positive characteristic or that characteristic is no longer appealing, the so-called love that's based on the characteristic just disappears. How many times in counseling over the years I've heard either of the partners say, I don't love her anymore. It's because so many husbands and wives have only that kind of a conditional attachment to each other that their marriages fall apart as soon as one of the partners loses his or her appeal or does not live up to the partner's usually unreasonable expectations. And so... We have to say what's often called love isn't love at all. Whatever it is, it's gone. It's interesting, too, that the Scripture doesn't speak of love in terms of emotion. We're commanded to love. We're commanded. God calls husbands to deliberate, voluntary love, not merely emotion or feeling over which they have no control. This quality of love is the result of a decision we make an irreversible, irrevocable commitment and an act of the will as well as of the heart. Our wonderful Lord purchased the church with his own blood. And so deeply is he concerned about her welfare, reminded of that Old Testament passage in which God's love and his people is so visibly portrayed in the story of Hosea's unfailing tenderness toward his wife, Gomer. And when you read about her, you wonder how this ever happened. She wasn't true to him. She was unfaithful. She went after other lovers, and even conceived children. The Bible says in whoredom. Nevertheless, Jose, instead of rejecting her, slips away to the haunt of her shame, buys her back from her paramours for fifteen pieces of silver and a homer and a half of barley, and mercifully restores her to her former position of honor. Christ's love for us is similar. How great is the forgiveness of God because He loves us so much. The Word of God says He loved us while we were yet sinners. Why? Well, because it was in His heart to love us. God is love. God loved Israel in spite of our unfaithfulness. And Christ Loves his church in the same way sacrificing his life for her while she was yet in sin. This love is utterly, totally, completely self-sacrificing love. When our Lord invaded this world, he knew what he had before him. He knew he was going to be mocked, he was going to be ridiculed, he was going to be maligned, he was going to be rejected, he was going to be beaten, and eventually eventually, he would be the victim of the Calvarian murderers who would nail him to a Roman cross. He knew from eternity past what would be demanded of his eternal love if he were to provide uh, salvation for you and for me. He gave as his first prerogative his only son. The apostle so magnificently expresses it in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the ignominious, gruesome death of the cross. And so the spirit-filled, spirit-led husband does not love his wife for what she can do for him. This would just reduce her to a thing or a slave. He loves her because of what he can do for her to express in every conceivable way the God-given Christ-like love that reigns in his heart for her. By the way, our wonderful Lord does not love us because we're so lovable. He loves us with an unconditional divine love infinitely beyond our understanding and delights to unsparingly pour out undeserved blessing and favor. What an example this is for a husband to emulate. The husband who loves his wife for what you can do for him loves as the world loves, not as Christ loves. That kind of love never gets beyond Eros. The husband who loves his wife as Christ loved his church gives everything he has for his wife, including his life if necessary. Again, a husband's love should be a protecting one. He should be the defender of his wife. When the apostle speaks of a husband being the savior of the body, he's describing a caring love, a cherishing love. A husband who puts his wife's needs first, defends her against any depreciation of her treasured value to him. Next to the Lord Jesus Christ, she holds the first place in his life. even as our wonderful Lord made our salvation, his priority even unto death. A husband who loves his wife, according to the word of Scripture, gives first priority to her spiritual needs. This is a practical, thoroughgoing recognition of the primary significance of the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. A husband's love should be that of a loving leader. A father's to be a leader, and leadership is not something you assert something that you demonstrate and you earn. Even as our Lord's authority was rooted in the sacrifice of himself, so must be the authority of the Father, which really means that he must give a loving direction to his family. He must be the counselor, the teacher, the comforter. This always fascinates me. In the Old Testament, a Jewish father was responsible for th- three things in relation to his son. And by the way, if he didn't do these three things, he was in trouble with the elders. Number one, he had to teach the word of God. It was his responsibility. Secondly, he had to find a wife. I always thought that was a good idea. Johnny didn't think so. Number three, he had to teach his son a trade or a profession. If he didn't do those three things, he was called before the elders. Because a father, you see, is a transmitter of norms and goals. He should be feeding the hunger of the mind and setting the sights of the family members for their mission and their purpose in the plan of God for their lives. The security of wife and children is to be directly dependent upon the husband's ability to determine what is best for the family and then to... See that it's done. See that it's carried out. Patience to work on a problem. Wisdom to see the best solution. And the carried out are the husband's absolute responsibility to seek God in all things. He must provide guidance. He must be a spiritual and intellectual nurturer. He must establish and he must model family values. And his wife and his children are his responsibility. The source of their understanding of what life is all about. Their ability to cope with temptation. Their education in the Christian faith. The privilege of prayer. Are all part of his personal obligation. A Christian husband must be understanding Considerate, never belligerent, never authoritarian, never selfish. If husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, no wife would have any difficulty respecting the leadership of her husband. And by the way, a man's commitment to his wife even takes a precedent over his obligation to his children. Too many families are child-centered rather than marriage-centered or Christ-centered and psychologically nothing could be more unhealthy for children. I've seen homes where the children were in charge of everything. The marriage should maintain its center of gravity and the children benefit from a stable Christian marriage. The father must set the parameters of proper behavior. He must... Provide loving authority. He must set the fences and always make it very clear that where there is disobedience, there's consequences. That when you break the fence, you're in trouble. And all of this, the Father's influence, of course, is crucial. Like Father, like Son is never truer than in these areas. Our twigs are apt to take our crookedness and become bent, contorted trees. Further, the husband should assume the burden of supporting the family. The Apostle said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, he that doesn't care for his own family is worse than an infidel. As the church must look to Christ alone for her good and her welfare, so must the wife and the children receive their material needs through the faithful service of the husband. You know, when the disciples were wanting positions of power in the coming kingdom, you remember our Lord told them in no uncertain terms that appointments to positions of power and authority were under God's jurisdiction. And then he seized the moment to teach them some basic lessons about Christian leadership. And so in Mark 10, 42 to 45, he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When our Lord met with his disciples just before his arrest and the farce trial, Obviously, fully aware of all that was going to happen to him and what his death would mean to the world. We read these very intriguing words in the 13th chapter of John, verses 4 and 5. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. At this high moment of glory, Our matchless Christ, the leader and husband of his church, practiced exactly what he had preached. He became a servant, a servant leader, a leader-servant of the family. Again, the attitude of a Christian husband toward his wife should be one of loving care. The husband's perspective is horribly twisted if he thinks of his wife as a personal cook, laundry maid, babysitter, sex partner, nothing more. She's actually to be his loving helper, to fulfill her husband's need for love and companionship, physical intimacy, partnership and friendship, to be the mother of his children. Husband and wife, our Lord said, are one flesh. It's the most effective union on earth. And when we ask, what does it mean to love your wife as your own body, the concept is extremely simple. You take care of your own body. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you become soiled, you wash. You take care of your body constantly, feeding, clothing, comforting, providing whatever it needs. And that is the very essence of the love you should show to your wife. We're to be preoccupied with meeting her needs, whatever they are. Christ provides for his church because we're members of his body, and not to provide for his church would be not to provide for himself. The principle of love as it is operative in marriage produces an intense desire to make life for another the finest experience possible. Our Lord shares common life with the church, and we're members of his body and then the scripture makes it terribly intimate. His flesh is boons. The apostle wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. In Galatians 2, 20, the apostle said, Nevertheless, I live and yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then... A Christian husband's love is a purifying love. Verses 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Dr. Ryan said said it's as though the apostle can scarcely speak on the subject, but that it brings before him one who has won his own heart and he must tell us more about him, this blessed husband, this glorious head of the church. This ideal for every Christian husband gave up his own precious life for the bride of his heart, the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. What a beautiful picture this is. It suggests that Christ's love for the church is something that drives him to make her pure and keep her pure. He wants to clothe the church in glory. The Greek word translated glorious in verse 27 is endoxos, which speaks of a gorgeous splendor. Luke 7.25 uses the word in the English version, gorgeously appareled. It speaks of pure, spotless beauty that he communicates to her. It's Christ's own glory bestowed on the church. It is the splendor of his holiness and virtue without stain, without wrinkle, without flaw. My son has a section in his book on successful Christian parenting in which he writes, when a man truly loves his wife, her purity should be his supreme concern. No one should ever want to defile a person whom he really loves. The young man who says he loves his fiancee but wants her to have sex with him before marriage is not driven by love at all. That's your lust. Love honors and protects the purity of its object. Husband, if you really love your wife, you will hate anything that defiles her. Whatever threatens to steal her purity will become to you a mortal enemy. Conversely, any so-called love that drags a partner through uncleanness is a false love any love that coarsens instead of refining the character, any love which necessitates deceit, any love which weakens the moral fiber, any love from which a person emerges a worse person is never a not-love because real love is the great cleanser, the great purifier of all life. Through the miracle of regeneration, our The Lord sought to make for himself a church cleansed, purified, consecrated, until there was neither soiling spot nor disfiguring wrinkle upon it. The Apostle Paul looks at this preparation of the bride from a divine point of view. It's the bridegroom himself, even Christ, who here in verse 27 is described as preparing the one who one day will be manifested as his bride so that she'll be brilliant in her purity. And the reference here, of course, is to the great consummation when our Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory. Christ himself uh, uh, readies her in order to present her to himself. The point stressed, of course, is that she, the church, can do nothing in her own power. She owes all of her beauty to him. And so brilliant is her purity that she will be seen having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she might be holy before him and flawless. Lastly, a Christian's husband's love is an unbreakable love. A Christian's love for his wife must be unbreakable. It must be an eternal, enduring love. He no more thinks of separating from her than he would think of tearing his own body apart. This is the bond that God ordained For marriage. And just as the body of Christ is indivisible, God's ideal for marriage is that it is indivisible. As Christ is one with his church, husbands are one with their wives. Therefore, when a husband harms his wife, he harms himself. When he violates his marriage vows, he violates himself. A husband who destroys his marriage destroys a part of himself the whole relationship is, as the apostle put it, is in the Lord. It's lived in the presence of the Lord. It's lived in the atmosphere of His love. He is the arbiter of its destiny. He is the decision maker. He is ever and always the unseen guest. As we said a moment ago in Christian marriage, it's not two partners, but three. And the third is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's No superiority or inferiority in a God-ordained relationship. Both husband and wife are utterly dependent upon God's marvelous grace that we were singing about a moment ago. The communion, the fellowship, and the intimacy cannot be found in any other relationship in the world. The story is told about the wife of one of Cyrus' generals who was charged with treachery against the king. She was called before him and after the trial was condemned to die. Her husband, who did not realize what had taken place, was appraised of it and he came hurrying into the court. And when he heard the sentence condemning his wife to death, he threw himself prostrate before the king and he said, Sir, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. And Cyrus was so touched, so moved. He said, Love like this must not be spoiled by death and he gave them back to each other and the wife was set free and as they walked happily away the joyous husband said to his wife did you notice how kindly the king looked on us when he gave to you that pardon she said I had no eyes for the king I only saw the man who was willing to die for me that's the picture you have here That should characterize the Christian husband. Willing to give of his best, even of his life, for the blessing and the safety of his dear ones. And so in the closing of this marvelous section in verse 32, the apostle says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ the husband, the church the wife, Christ the head, the church the body. This, as you know, is a marvelous mystery that was not made known in other ages, but now has been fully revealed on the pages of the New Testament was Dr. Ironside who said it is a great truth which you and I are called upon to confess and acknowledge in this dispensation of the grace of God. But we're not to be so carried away by this truth that we forget the truth of that relationship between husband and wife. So the apostle once again from the mystery itself comes to the practical application in verse 33 and he says, Nevertheless, let every one of you particularly so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. It is such Christian homes as these that will commend the gospel that we preach. People will see things lived out in our lives and realize the power of Christ to bind two hearts together and enable them to manifest the mutual relationship of Christ and the church. And as John says in his book on parroting, the best motive I know for a husband to love his wife is that his love for her honors Christ. How he treats her is a testimony not only to the wife but also to the world at large about Christ's love for his people. The husband who understands this sacred mystery will delight to love, purify, protect, and care for his wife. And this sacred union is the foundation upon which fathers nourish and encourage their children towards spiritual maturity. Anyone can discover the joy, the fulfillment of Christian marriage who will sincerely pray this prayer. Lord, make my marriage, make my life an example in your relationship to those for whom you died. Be the heart be the center of our home you see a home is like a solar system the center of the great sun holds the whole solar system together if it were not for the sun the solar system would fly to pieces unless the son of God is put at the center of your home there's a real possibility it could fly all to pieces so make the sun the center of your home And follow God's orders so magnificently outlined in the passage that we have considered together.